turn by McKenna. Hello and welcome back to the Premier League Trio podcast. My name is Hayder and I'm your host as usual today. I'm sure you're getting bored of seeing my face on about five podcasts a week, but there's a new face joining me today. and I'm delighted to be joined by Dutch football expert James Rowe. James has got such an extensive knowledge of Dutch football and he's also interviewed many international players and managers around the world. And what I'm really delighted to say is that James is going to be here to talk to me about Donny van der Beek. He's going to talk a little bit about Ronald Koeman because he is taking over at Barcelona and I would like to get an insight into how he's going to play over there. And he's going to talk about his beloved Arsenal because, I mean, what better than to talk about to someone who's got such a great following. So James Rowe, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. I had the I had the honour of, of talking with James on uh, All for United. That's a show that I regularly contribute on. And uh, he really blew me away with his knowledge. It's, it's difficult to find, you know, re- I suppose, English-speaking people who do comment on Dutch football or who can understand and analyse it. So, f- you know, for a lot of United fans, I think this is a real great opportunity to talk about Donny van der Beek. So, James, let's just start off with how impressed have you been with van der Beek in his very short career? Because he's someone who was obviously looked at by Real Madrid and Barcelona. And I mean, that's probably the highest echelons of football, isn't it, really? The two biggest and most prestigious Spanish clubs and probably the biggest clubs in the whole of Europe. Uh, Along with Manchester United and Real Madrid had interest, but haven't been able to complete the deal. Barcelona, I believe, had interest as well. So for United to get him for about 30 million euros plus 5 million add-ons, that represents great business, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, As I said on different podcasts this week, Hader, they've signed a great character and a great footballer who's very, very clever, has a fantastic work rate and also is a real team player, plays in the interest of the team, wants to get on the end of things, wants to make things happen. It appeared to be a question of when, not if, he would sign for Real Madrid. But um, Manchester United did ever so well to get him. I think the successful loan policy that... um, that Real Madrid had with their loanees doing ever so well domestically as well as abroad meant they didn't turn their attentions to Van der Beek. Um, I think the Barcelona link was quite tenuous, if I'm honest. I think that was only brought through because of Koeman. And uh, Man United have done ever so well. You know, he's a real, he's an asset in terms of uh, wanting to play as a collective and, and always always wanting to, to play in the interest of the team. He's, he's not an individual um you know, superstar where it's all about him. It's all about the team and, and becoming an interest and becoming uh, becoming important for the team. So his best years are ahead of him and most certainly at Old Trafford, I believe. Absolutely. I'm delighted with this deal, with this deal because <clears throat> for many years, Man United have been a club which has spent a vast amount of money, probably about £1.2 in the last seven years. How many of those players can you actually say have been good signings. I mean, one that particularly stands out to me is Memphis Depay. And I just want to get your view on Depay quickly because he was obviously very highly rated. We'll go back to Van der Beek, but Depay is someone that I had very high hopes for. He had a great season, the season before he joined United. He's obviously 
again, he's picked up since he's left and moved to Lyon. But what was the issues with Depay at United? Because he was playing under a Dutch manager, Louis van Gaal, and he was, you know, I suppose getting that dream move, but he just never really quite hit the heights that we expected. And he's gone away. He's looked really good for Lyon. But what's happened? what happened to him at United? And do you expect him to make a move to a bigger club in the future? Well, I think at the United, I think just, it can be summed up by a little bit too much too soon. I mean, he had a tremendous season, as you say, at PSV Eindhoven, scoring goals, making assists. And I think Van Gaal was trying to capture the the youthful exuberance of Depay and hoping that that would translate into the Premier League. But they're two completely different leagues, two completely different leagues. For every uh, Luis Suarez, there's an Alfonso Alves um, of Middlesbrough. And I've always said to someone who's watched Eredivisie firsthand for more than a decade, it's an acquired taste. And if you look hard enough, you can find some excellent players. And um, I think Depay, I think it just came just a little bit too soon for him. You see how his confidence has shot up at, at Lyon, how he's much more of a presence at international football with Oranje as well. So I don't know about a move in the future. I'm, I'm not entirely sure the move will be Premier League um, destined. Lots of people are expecting it to be Premier League destined from Lyon. I'm not entirely sure. I think there's obviously La Liga and Serie A. And um, so it'd be interesting to see what happens. But I think just come a little bit too soon for him. And as someone who interviews professional players and managers on a regular basis, timing is everything in football. Timing of a transfer, timing of a manager coming in. And, you know, I think fans in this day and age as well, they are too busy to look at the price tag rather than the previous. You know, players are also human beings as well. Many of them have gone through a, a, a youth academy of a big club, which is meant that they missed a lot of their childhood you know well rather than going out with their friends and doing the normal things that teenagers do they are um, going to the training center to play football or doing their homework at, at strange hours so people forget that as well but I think Depay's best years are definitely ahead of him and I think he's definitely matured in Lyon I, th- I think a lot of people are quick to, um, to mal- malign the French league but when you've got Teams like Paris Saint-Germain, Monaco, Marseille, Marseille, Saint-Étienne, um, Marseille, all in one league, then I think um, I think it, it's got to be a good league of good quality. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm delighted to see him do a lot better. I think he's a player who clearly has talent, but like you said, it looked like the move came far too soon. And... Um, I'm happy he hasn't hindered the rest of his career because you've seen that with a lot of players, haven't you? They make that big move and it, it goes disastrously wrong and then the rest of their career, they're just career, they're bouncing from club to club and eventually they end up in the lower levels of uh, of whichever league around Europe. And it's a shame to see, but I'm delighted he's doing well. I expect him, well, I hope he replaces Jane Sancho at Dortmund and Sancho comes United. But let's go back to Donny van der Beek and Something that I was very have been impressed with actually is Van der Beek is always a big game player. If you look at the goals he scored, he scored against Spurs in the Champions League on that great run to the semis. He scored against Chelsea, I believe, this season. Juventus as well. He's got 40 goals and 34 assists in 159 games. And something that did stand out to me again was that injury record. He's played over 30 games in the, the four seasons he's played. And that's something, it might sound a little bit silly, but that's something which is big for United fans because we have a lot of players that do tend to get injured and they're sitting on the, the injury table and it's a problem for us. But there's lots of talks about where he actually plays his best position. And I'm seeing today on Twitter, and this is something which I don't quite understand. I think 
perhaps maybe it's a lack of understanding of what sort of player he is or maybe it's just a a, a lack of knowledge in terms of maybe the defensive side of the game but he, he can play in the all three positions and i think that's important but having a midfield of donny van der beek sitting deep as like for example a defensive midfielder pogba a little further up and bruno that for me lacks a lot of defensive capability i think it's it's very at risk in the premier league especially against bigger sides of getting exposed so where would you say his best position is and do you expect him to be starting regularly at man united well, if we go back to the beginning when he first broke through here at Ajax, he was playing as a central defensive midfielder. And then he had a, a substantial experience playing as a number eight. And then recently, and particularly in the past two seasons, he's um, attacking midfielder where you, you feel his presence on the pitch, particularly, particularly in the last two seasons. I'm not saying it wasn't there before, but particularly in the last two seasons, being captain of Ajax as well, you can really see that. And um, I think his experience of being playing all three, I don't think that he will turn up at Old Trafford expecting to play in a specific position. You know, he himself, um, when with Dutch media quotes saying, you know, playing alongside Fernandes and Pogba, they're two of the best midfielders in the world and he'll be able to learn from them. So I think in the first instance, what you'll see is I think he'll play where he's asked to play. And I think as time goes on, it'll come into his own and uh, the position that he will find his feet. But, um, you know, he's going there with a very much a, a team ethic mentality already, and he's yet to even play a game for United, you know, looking at who he's going to play with. And that's just a measure of the of the young man, really, to be 23 years old and to have captained Ajax. I mean, it's, it's one thing to play for Ajax final, PSV, the traditional top three here, but it's another thing to captain him. And he did ever so well, and uh, being part of um, cup wins and, and league titles as well. And, um, you know, it's, it stood him in good stead. And um, I think you'll see a, a slow progression at, um, at Manchester United. I think he'll just kind of keep ticking along, keep giving those seven out of ten performances, and then you'll see him kind of grow even more. So I think it's a very, very good move for both the player and the club. I agree. I think I can see him probably playing in that deep role against the smaller sides at home where United have a lot of the ball. I think that's that's quite a mouth-watering midfield in terms of the ability to keep hold of the ball, creativity. I think it'd be really great. But for me, what I've been really impressed with actually is his ability to make those late runs into the area and latching onto, onto you know forward passes. And I think when I look at Pogba, something he really excels in is his ability to make incisive passes into the box. And something that really stands out to me is something that Pochettino alluded to. And he said there's a rare intelligence to Van der Beek's style, his ability to drift between the lines of the opposition, linking midfield and attack and finding dangerous pockets of space in the final third. And this is a difficult skill to coach. Would you say this is probably his strongest asset and something that United fans should be excited about? Because it's almost a skill in itself, isn't it? Making those late mm-hmm. runs into box, Frank Lampard-esque. And it's something actually, you look around Europe, a lot of players are good with the ball at their feet, but their movement is something which is not up to scratch. And is Van der Beek probably one of the best around at that? I would say so. I mean, if you look at the education and the generation that he came through the Ajax Academy with, you know, alongside Frenkie de Jong, um, Matthias de Ligt, you know, these are players that received the footballing education. Ajax is a club where the, the, the youth is, is the youth setup is the bloodline of the club. I mean, when you go to matches before the match starts, you've got a young eight or nine year old from the academy doing in excess of 1500 kick ups consecutively before the game has even started. 
and they'll ask his name and you know where he comes from and how long he's been in the academy and they have different groups and the um the demands on these young players you know this you know the fact that they are they play for ajax and the standards it, it upholds i mean i've spoken to many players that have come through the ajax academy and have gone on to play for other other eredivisie clubs and they were saying that from a very young age they're taught to respect their teammates they're taught to respect their opponents and their coaches and these kind of um, skill sets and decorative decorative nature of understanding the game it kind of really helps to play to hold the players in good stead Yeah, I completely agree. Something that really stood out to me actually is the the outpour of, uh, I suppose, praise for him now that he's left. You saw the beautiful tribute from uh, Ajax on Twitter and you've seen uh, fans alike. I think what's really struck me is how classy a club Ajax is. Like you're saying, it's a family club. And I do see similarities because Man United was built on that. It was built on that family club, the culture, the values. Uh, it's something that's so... It's beautiful, I think, and you lose that in the modern game with the money that's sloshing about and uh, the clubs which have uh, oil states backing them <laughs> and, uh, you know, these sort of things. But I do want to touch on two things. I want to touch on Edmund van der Sar and the impact because a lot of reports are coming out that he had a big impact. If I'm being honest, I think that's just paper talk. I think he would have obviously mentioned United in a positive light. But how important has van der Sar been to Ajax's sort of rebirth? Because he came in at in a pretty particularly difficult time back in well as ceo in 2016 but he was director of marketing wasn't he in 2012 mm -hmm. and he took yeah. that job as ceo he's had to learn on a job but he's had to deal with obviously the tragic case of uh, abdul haq nuri which mm -hmm. van der beek is also wearing the number 34 shirt in in honor of him and he's had mm -hmm. to in essence return ajax back to its values and how well has he done doing that and what has been the impact, I suppose, of this is the second part of Delict and De Jong being able to move last season? Because that's two very key players. And was it a case of Van der Beek was upset he didn't get his move, or was he's that sort of character which just put his head down and worked hard? Well, he's that character that put his head down and, and worked hard. They they make they make agreements with players. I mean, they're never completely set in stone. But the players always respect the agreements that took place. I mean, last year, for example, De Ligt and, uh, and Flanky de Jong was quite apparent that Donny van der Beek was going to stay for one more season. And I think he accepted that. And I don't think he got annoyed or upset or anything. You know, it's another opportunity to captain a club and, and to show that he's got the, got the metal and that he wants to do it. And it kind of helped him improve even more as a player. Um, to, to, let, to give you an idea as to how well van der Sar has done um, if you didn't know any better you'd forget he was a footballer because he along with Overmars take their role very very seriously and are the consummate professionals and when you read the, their comments in local media when you hear them on the television they are just so transparent in terms of what they have to do and what they're trying to achieve and you can forget it's easy to forget when you listen to them in in such um in such um um, positions that, they, that they're in now, it's easy to forget that they were both professional footballers in their own right. And it's testament to how well they've done. And both of them in particular, they're also really enjoying the role. It's not their respective roles. They're not, they're not enjoying the roles with the hope of going to do something else. They're actually really enjoying the role and, and being at the games and being involved with the fans. And, and you say about the fans being a classy club, having watched Ajax first hand for more than a decade, 
it never ceases to amaze me that when a new player comes on, whether it's a, a debut or coming on as sub, the fans will clap and holler and encourage as if a big superstar has turned up because they understand the journey that those young players have been on from a very young age to get to play for Ajax. And um, it's just the, the lifeblood of the club, really, and hopefully something that will remain for a long time. You see that they are delving into the South American market. They are trying something a little bit different, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's about finding a fine a fine balance and um, identifying the best talent in uh, in the Netherlands and hope hoping to be able to sign them. And uh, they do an excellent job, and they're a huge club. I mean, I, I first came here to the Netherlands as a tourist to watch my team play Ajax in 2003. And I immigrated here two years later. And it's funny how when I first got confronted with how big that club was, I knew I knew who they were. I knew there was a big club, but it was only until I actually arrived here and I started to watch them firsthand that I started to see uh, the expectancy levels of the club and, and how the fans expect them to, to always be going for titles and challenging and um, and making headway in Europe too. That's a great answer. Yeah, it's it's, it's one of those clubs though, Ajax, where I think for the older fan, I mean, I'm 25, so I didn't really get. To, well, I was born in '95. Obviously, that was a that was a very good year, I believe, with the Van Hall. Was it '95 the yeah. Champions League victory? So obviously, I missed us for the four nil against. Was it Milan? Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, it's the one nil win against Milan due to one nil win. Yes, yes, sorry, my mistake. But yeah, so I obviously am a young fan. So I, during my lifetime, Ajax has never been the club that it was in the 90s and, and earlier. You know, it was, it was in some sense, it was the standard bearer of football on how to run your club. So for me now, since Van der Sar's come in, and obviously, look, you've got a very good manager. There's a very good manager there as well, Ten Hag, the conveyor belt of talent from the academy. But it's just such an admirable club. And I want to go back to Van der Sar quickly as well, because obviously as a United fan, Wonderful player, massive fan of him. Great character. That was the key for me. Great character. He was someone, when you look at the defence we had when we won the 2008 Champions League final, Ferdinand and Vidic in front of him, Wes Brown was on the right. Obviously, Gary Neville was, uh, was, I believe, still in the squad and Patrice Evra. But you look at that, that back four and they were all great characters. But Van der Sar was someone who was always held in high esteem. United fans are calling for him to return back to United in some sort of capacity, perhaps the CEO level. Um, obviously, He's doing great stuff for Ajax. Could you see a case where Van der Sar does go to United in the in the near future? Um, it's possible, but again, it comes back to timing. You know, you got to remember that these CEOs and former players—they also have families, and they're based here and they live here. And it's simply not a case of if you are committed with family that you can up sticks and move in the blink of an eye. It may be easier for a younger player. But for an elder statesman, for example, then um, especially if they're from this country and they were born and raised here, um, it's not as easy, but it could well be possible. I mean, one thing I've noticed through speaking to players and managers, haters, every manager always wants to get to the highest possible level. Every player also wants to get to the highest possible level. So for CEOs as well, I, I gather it's the same. So it'll be something to keep an eye out for the future. Absolutely. That's something which I would love to see maybe in the next two or three years. But let's move on now to Ronald Koeman, because I think it's an appointment which definitely surprised me. Surprised me in, in one way, only because 
when you look what's out there, for example, Maurizio Pochettino, I think, is a fantastic manager. I'm surprised perhaps Barcelona didn't go towards there. But obviously with Ronald Koeman's history at Barcelona being an incredible player and understanding the club and the values and the culture that's needed, I can see why they appointed him. For Premier League fans, I think it's some sort of appointment which they're quite surprised at. You look at, he did very well at Southampton. They had an excellent Southampton side where they came fifth in the Premier League. And he moved on to Everton and you thought, right, new backing, new owners. Marcel Brands is there as well, who's, uh, you know, a very, well, a very well-respected director of football. Mm. Uh, and you believe that they're going to go move forward and really challenge the top top four or top six. And it was a disaster, to be honest. I think the, mm-hmm. the purchases were poor. I mean, someone that really surprised me that struggled was uh, Davy Carsons. I thought he was going to be a phenomenal player. He kind of, there's a bit of similarities with Van der Beek um, that I, I, I've seen a few times, which I think, okay, maybe hopefully he can settle well, but if not, is he going to be another Davy Classens? But what I want to ask you is, are you surprised that he got the Barcelona job? Uh, although he did it on the back of obviously a very, very successful stint with the Netherlands. And how is he going to set up and play over there? So, well, first and foremost, it's been his dream, basically since he became a manager, to one day coach FC Barcelona. If you go back to be- the beginning, Koeman started out life here in the Netherlands as coaches for Tessa. Vitesse are a very good side with an excellent youth academy. And after great results, he moved on to Ajax. Since then, he's coached Arsenal Alkmaar, Feyenoord, PSV, and Benfica and Valencia as well. And one thing that stuck with me many years ago, when he was revealed as the manager of Valencia, he was in his press conference and he said, oh, this is a great step to eventually become Barcelona manager. And I thought to myself, you, you, you are now Valencia manager. Surely that's... Um, that's priority number one. And when he arrived, he marginalised um, um, Santiago Canizares, David Albelda, Ruben Baraja, and they really, really struggled. I mean, yes, they won the Copa del Rey, but sometimes they were flirting with relegation. And I think Koeman's took the job because this was his last chance to take the job. Um, a couple of months ago, he was out cycling here in the Netherlands in the area of Amsterdam. And he had a bit of a health health episode where he was taking him for observation. And I think that kind of shocked him a little bit. You know, you're out cycling and then next minute you're in observation in hospital, on um, under observation in hospital. So I think the opportunity has come up now and the opportunity may well never come again. He is adamant that the uh, he will be there for at least two years. But obviously with the presidential elections of Barcelona, the potential winner has stated that he wants to bring Xavi Hernandez to the club next season. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Um, Koeman has already stated that he will deliberately play um, Griezmann and De Jong in their correct positions. And he's made that quite clear to Dutch media and to Spanish media. And it will be very, very interesting to see um, to see what he does. I mean, hopefully he's grown as a coach as well. But Barcelona is a very demanding job. It's one of the most difficult clubs in Europe to manage. It's always very much, they have to be seen to be winning literally every game. Um, and um, it's a huge, it's a huge task for him. And to leave the Dutch national team, many people might not know, he actually had a clause in his contract that if Barcelona came, came in for him, he could leave. It was the only club that was in such a clause. It was the only club that was inserted. So And he said, oh, I'm not going to leave before the Euros, but this was before the corona outbreak. 
and also as well, you know, the opportunity to eventually manage Barcelona because that's what he wants. He wants to have it on his CV that he was manager of Barcelona, obviously having been assistant to Van Gaal in the past there. It's not quite the same. But it's La Liga is, in terms of depth, in my opinion, the best league in the world. Because when you're going away to Sociedad in San Sebastian, and then you're going away to Sevilla, and then you're going away to Villarreal and to uh, to Madrid and Barcelona, it's a real test, both home and away. And um, you see as well with the teams that got promoted, you know, the likes of Cadiz, the likes of um, Elche, for example, and Huesca. You know, they're, they're also very good teams, especially at home. So it'll be very interesting to see what the La Liga season brings this season. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, like you're you're completely correct. I remember hearing him say that those very words that the end goal is Barcelona. I've always found that a little bit disrespectful. Maybe I'm being a little bit of a snowflake, but I've always thought that when you're at a club, of course, you can have aspirations. A lot of managers do. A lot of managers have, for example, if they're managing a smaller club in a certain league, they'll want to manage the, you know, if you're at Everton, you want to manage Man United or Chelsea, you know, Manchester City, Liverpool, etc. But uh, an Arsenal is another one. But to have that mentality, I feel like that's definitely contributed to his downfall as well. Because if you're an owner of a of a club, wouldn't you look at him and think, well, this guy isn't committed. Why should I go yeah. and spend 250 million for him? Is that is that something that's maybe a bit outrageous for me to say? I mean, tell me your view on that. No, I don't think so at all. I mean, as I say, that's that's why I deliberately took the listener and the viewer back to his very early managerial days of Pitessa. Ajax and then going on to manage Arsenal, Alakmar, PSV and Feyenoord and um, it's no um, it's no secret that he took over Arsenal when they was in the Champions League when Van Gaal left for Bayern Munich so the opportunism to manage a club that was playing Champions League football for example and um, yeah it'll be very interesting to see how he gets on as I say you can't plan a career you really can't I think I think the players that think that you can and the managers that think that you can, um, uh, they're a little bit naive because you can't. Because there are so, so many different facets. You know, I spoke to um, Danny Cowley when he was manager of um, manager of Lincoln and he was ever so nice to send me a reply when I congratulated him when he became manager of Huddersfield. And he said, oh, he said on the, the uh, private text message, he said, you know, me and my brother, we're really looking forward to the challenge. It's been really, really busy. And they were only there for 10 months. And then you have a chairman saying that we're going to take a new vision now and we're going to do something different. Danny Cowley remains, along with his brother, uh, one of the best young managerial duos in the whole of English football. So one club will be lucky to have him, but therein lies the opportunity to manage Huddersfield and leave Lincoln for Huddersfield and then for, the, for it to be such a short stint. You know, it's, it's not his fault, of course, but um, I think some some chairman, I think they see the bright lights and they see the recognition and they think, oh, I wouldn't mind a little bit of that, but they're not on the pitch playing, are they? And there's a famous um, saying, you know, the best referees, the, the best referees, you never see them, you never notice them. And it's the same with chairman. The best chairman, you never notice them. And you never read about them, never hear about them. I mean, Arsenal, for example, years ago when we had the likes of um, uh, David Dean, Danny Fisman, uh, Peter Hillwood, was completely world away to what we have now. And obviously the, the landscape has changed. But um, yeah, it just goes to show how football has changed as well in that respect. 
Absolutely. That's a great answer. Before we move on to your beloved Arsenal, let's uh, let me ask you a question. Maybe it's difficult to say a uh, two parter because uh, I know you've interviewed a lot of, you know, really well connected people, managers, uh, players, etc. What is Ronald Koeman's reputation around sort of from what you've heard or from you can also deduce your own opinion? I don't really ho- hold him in that high esteem as a manager, as a player. He was obviously phenomenal. And do you think he'll be a success at Barcelona? Um. Well, I think he's very much an opportunist, I think. Very much an opportunist. You know, obviously, when starting out at Vitesse and then going to Ajax, managing Arsene when there was in the Champions League, when he left finals, there was rumours of Barcelona and he turned up at Southampton. He also managed Benfica, who are a gargantuan club, an absolutely massive club. And I remember seeing a Dutch media piece many years ago where the Dutch media went to Lisbon to speak to him. And they said, oh, how's your Portuguese? How do you address the players? He said, no, I speak Spanish to him. And I thought, but, but surely, you know, the manager of Benfica has a, um, has a responsibility, like the manager of Sporting or like the manager of FC Porto, to have a command of, of Portuguese, even though it's not very good. If, if you compare that to former, du- former Dutch manager, Co Adrians, who made a wonderful miracle to get Willem Tvey Playing Champions League football, uh, playing um, playing Champions League football, and getting them really high up. Coadrians managed FC Porto, and as far as I'm aware, his Portuguese is very good. But obviously, nobody hears about Coadrians anymore. But obviously, the people of uh, Willem Tvey who know how what what a wonder the man worked, and obviously going on to managing Porto as well. You know, these these are the different stories. And if I'm brutally honest, I actually don't think that Kuman will last the season. I think something will happen where maybe in the second part of the season, in the run-up to the potential elections and bad results and everything, um, I think it may go awry. So I'll be surprised if he completes a full season. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I I don't see how it's going to work. Obviously, the whole messy thing as well is something which no one knows how it's going to play out, whether he'll leave or or stay. I think um, from what I've read today, it looks like it's going to be difficult for him to leave. But I believe Koeman's laid down the law to him. But anyway, let's move on to your beloved, the Arsenal. And um, you've been an Arsenal fan, as you told me off air, for over around 30 years. And um, just talk to me about your views on the Emery sacking and the Arteta appointment. Because I know a lot of Arsenal fans are very split. At the time, I think my brother's an Arsenal fan as well, so we talk about this a lot. But at the time, um, I thought, okay, I'm not sure about this appointment. It seems to me that they're appointing him because perhaps Arsenal couldn't get their top top choice manager. It seemed like a massive risk. I think Emery probably had to go. It just wasn't really the right fit. Um, And let's fast forward to now. Well, Arsenal have won the FA Cup. Although the league position was is very low. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, he didn't have a full season. Arteta had, I think, about 19 games. That's uh, pretty much half a season. So to still finish that low, for me, is still, a, I think the FA Cup's papered over the cracks in that respect. And then obviously he's won the Community Shield. Again, that's a friendly trophy. But, you know, it's two pieces of silverware if you want to count the Community Shield. So talk to me about your view on when Emery was sacked and what your view is on Arteta as the manager of Arsenal. Okay, well, my first um, my first feelings were one of embarrassment. I was at the double header of uh, Eintracht Frankfurt at home, and then I took the train up from London the following day to Norwich, 
and uh, I took the train up in the morning, got into my hotel room and my phone was going like the clappers. And then I read a message from my friend to let me know that, you know, Emily had been sacked. And my first feeling was one of embarrassment that we let um, a former manager rule the roost for 22 years. And then you have his successor only given 18 months. Within those 18 months, we reached our first European final for 13 years. And we had a 22-match unbeaten run where I was at a fair few of those games. And you saw the likes of Emil Smith-Rowe taking the game to Sporting Lisbon, who were a good side at home in the nil-nil draw. The likes of Rob Holding becoming our best defender. People were believing. People were believing slowly but surely that he was going to build something. And and people have, have, have very short memories, Hader. Uh, you know, this is a man who got Almeria promoted for, um, to La Liga. This is a man who, when uh, Valencia were in dire straits, managed to get them into the Champions League. And this is a man who's very principled and works as a collective. I mean, to win the Europa League three times on the spin, it's difficult enough to win it once, let alone three times on the spin. And and I um, I was embarrassed and I got the opportunity to speak to his former Real Madrid, uh, Real Sociedad, sorry, Real Sociedad teammate, Imino Odiakas, who's now managing in Cyprus. And uh, I spoke to Imino Odiakas and we spoke about Unai Emery. And this is, uh, this is uh, Imino Odiakas is, is a former teammate of Unai Emery and also his friend. And I, I said to Imino Odiakas that I'm embarrassed about Unai Emery. And he said that managers need time. Managers need time. You, you can be the greatest coach in the world. If you can't get your ideas across, then you're going to find it very difficult. And um, I, I think to myself, you think of the first season that Klopp had. Some Liverpool fans wanted Klopp to leave in his first season. Can you imagine if they'd have got their way? Can you imagine if they'd have got... I mean, the social media voice of Arsenal is, is extremely, extremely loud. But doesn't mean to say they're right. You also had a lot of the, um, a lot of the fan base, or especially the younger fan base, who appeared to think it was acceptable to mock someone's ability to speak a foreign language. And I tried to say to everyone, before you entertain the notion of writing something like that, or, you know, taking the mickey of good evening, you have to question how many languages do you, do you speak yourself? And I was, I was a, a vehement defender of Unai Emery, and I had, um, I had people try to come at me in some cases, and I tried to say to them, look, I've been living in the Netherlands for nearly 15 years, so fluent, fluent in Dutch, and I also speak Spanish. So I'm not, I'm not defending someone on the basis of I only speak one language, I speak four and um, and the most important thing is people need to think before they act. And uh, I just think that they wanted their pound of flesh, really. And they wanted uh, the Unai Emery out. And he's now managing BDL. And I'm absolutely certain that BDL will have a tremendous domestic season. I think he'll get them into the Champions League. And um, I think he'll start to build as well. And I'm sure he's hurt by the experience at Arsenal. But manage- managers do need time. People forget Haider what a difficult job being a football manager is. People really do forget it. And um, it's not just simply the case of picking 18 names in a squad and sending them across the white line. You have to think of everything. You have to think of the contract situation, players that are maybe not have played, the youth players. You literally have to think of everything. And um, so I think some people do underestimate what a difficult job it is. 
Um, to touch on uh, the aftermath of Unai Emery, I advocated Chris Wilder becoming Arsenal manager. And I was um, maligned in some cases and criticised in some cases. But I gave the following reasons, Hader. And the first one was, um, if you look at what Chris Wilder has done, you know, even in his days at, South, at Northampton with the record points total and what he's achieved with very, very limited resources. I've also spoken to three players who have played under him and they speak so highly of him. The first one was Richard Stearman. The season before Sheffield United came up and I spoke to um, um, Richard Stearman the previous November and I asked him about Chris Wilder specifically because I knew about Chris Wilder and he said that, he said, I'll tell you what, James, I'd ne I've never known anyone to stand in front of a group of players and motivate them to the best of their ability, including subs where everyone is willing to fight and everybody's willing to fight together. I then followed that up by speaking to uh, Sam Deering, who played under Chris Wilder at Oxford. And um, Sam Deering, on the eve of the season, broke his leg. And he thought, oh, I'm, I'm bound to be um, kind of, um, I'm, I'm going to be left out. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be um, valued. And Chris Wilder said to him, he said, look, you've had a, a huge knockback. We are going to give you the best treatment we can give you. We are going to look after you. We are going to help you. And you will come back to become a key player in our promotion push. And he was. And, and, and um, Sam Deering even said, you know, those words of encouragement, you know, really, really helped him. And, and then finally, I spoke recently to current Shelbourne manager Ian Morris, who, um, who works under Chris Wilder and Alan Neal, the assistant of Chris Wilder at Northampton. And, um, you know, Ian Morris even described um, Alan Neal as a great thinker who helps players with their education. And um, um, Ian Morris suffered an awful injury where he disloc dislocated his kneecap. And in the words of Chris Wilder, it was the worst injury he'd ever seen. And Ian Morris was absolutely distraught. You know, he, he was fearing for his career. He was worried about the, you know, the, the livelihood of his family, having a young family. And Chris Wilder said, look, this is the worst injury I've ever seen, but we are all going to stick by you. We're all going to make sure that you're going to be looked after and we're going to aid your recovery. And Ian Morris managed to get back on the training pitch. And the first time he got on a training pitch, all these players, all these teammates gave him a round of applause, including Chris Wilder. He gave a roaring speech about, look at the example this man is to come back from such an awful injury and be part of this squad and be part of our promotion push. And these are the qualities that people don't hear and people don't see. And I look at the qualities of Chris Wilde in particular, and that is why I wanted him as manager of Arsenal Football Club. Because when I listen to him, he's not just clear in terms of the English language. He's also clear in terms of football knowledge. And there's a lot of Arsenal fans, specifically younger fans, that don't really understand the game. And all they want to do is judge a player on a price tag, not on previous or what they've achieved before. And what I was hoping was, is that if we was to employ somebody, it would help like that. It would help to heal the rift between the fans of, of some thinking that they are better than others. I mean, I put out a tweet um, on the night that Gabriel signed and I put out a tweet that said, um, as regards to the news of Gabriel Marais, 
um, this comes at a cost of the of the youth team. The likes of Mark McGuinness and Daniel Ballard, they will now see their path blocked, in my opinion. And then I said, um, you know, where did uh, Kevin Campbell, Rocky Rocastle, Tony Adams, Paul Davis, where did they all come from? I went to the cinema, and when I come out of the cinema, that tweet that I'd sent had been um, retweeted over 100 times, liked over 100 times, and commented on over 150 times, the majority of which were extremely rude. Uh, I don't read my comments, so it doesn't bother me. But obviously, when you're scrolling, when you're scrolling down from different um, notifications, you, you kind of your eye roams. And I thought to myself, people are entitled to their opinion, Hader. But I'm not, I'm not being funny. These people that have given the rude opinions and the rude answers back, they're not interviewing professional players and managers like I am, are they? Whereas you've got, you've got to look at the other side of things, where for a young player. The journey of a young player, it can be decisive. I mean, you take Zach Medley. Zach Medley of Arsenal is now currently on loan at Gillingham. Zach Medley under Unai Emery was playing European football and was on the bench for Premier League games. And now he's on loan at Gillingham. What must be going through his head? You know, that one minute you're playing European football, one minute you're in contention to play in Premier League games, and the next minute you are loaned out to Gillingham. It's the same with Daniel Ballard. Daniel Ballard made five on five um, goal line um, clearances last season. Five, and um, you know did very well on loan to, on loan at Swindon before he was um, before he had a knee injury. These are two defenders. Hader, if these two defenders played for Ajax, they'd already be in the first team. And this is what I mean about we live in a, a world with a global pandemic. Some people are struggling. Some countries are struggling. And I think certain clubs have a responsibility to not waste money. And I look at Gabriel's previous, Dynamo Zagreb, Twa, and then all of a sudden, he's good enough for Arsenal. Pablo Mari was playing for Nuk Bredar here in the Dutch First Division, captain in the club. And now he's playing for Arsenal. So this is what I mean about previous. A lot of people in terms of Arsenal are very much um, judging it by the price tag. And in the case of Villian as well, Villian is a winger. And as you get older, you lose your pace. Arsenal are playing Willian a King's Ransom every single week. Who's to say that we're not going to have the same situation as Ozil in a year or two's time? And so this is what I mean. I mean, I, I was an advocate of going through the youth set up with a fine tooth comb, giving the likes of Medley, Ballard, McGuinness, Smith Rowe squad numbers. I'm not talking about playing them in the Premier League. I'm talking about making sure that they know that they're quite close and they'll be in contention. But unfortunately, my club that I love, hold so dear and love so dear, are, we seem to be in a situation where the people with the loudest voice seem to get heard. But the funny thing is, Hayden, when you prod these people about what they know in terms of depth, in terms of knowledge, rather than actually um, come back with sensible answers, um, they kind of show themselves up for what they are and it turns to abuse. And I think to myself, no, you just kind of leave that to the side. I mean, to, to finally finish on my point, I think Arteta is doing very well. Delighted to have won the FA Cup for the 14th time. The Charity Shield as well. He's doing an excellent job. But there is an awful long way to go and there's still a lot of hard work to be done. And um, I know predictions are very, um, are very premature 
even in this uh, time of the season. But if you're asking me where I think Arsenal will finish next season, I think Arsenal will finish between 7th and 9th. That is honestly one of the most honest responses I've ever heard from an Arsenal fan. So I just want to thank you, James, because the issue is, you're completely right. Look, the first point I want to make on Unai Emery is that I think because he wasn't the flashy name, that was a big problem for Arsenal fans. He wasn't an Allegri. He wasn't a Pochettino. You know, he wasn't a flashy name. You look at Allegri's career. Uh, sorry, Emery's career. He's done very, very well. He's a winner. He's won. I'm not going to say to you he's a top, top bracket manager, but the disrespect that he got and still continues to get to this day. I saw memes the other day where someone made a football opinion and there's a meme, you know, when you're standing in front of that blackboard with obviously the, the, the writing behind and they're like, this football genius. The hate and the disrespect he still gets is just disgusting. I think he's actually going to do very well at Villarreal. I expect him to, yes, get back into Europe. If not, if they're in the Europa League, I expect him to win the Europa League. He's just a master winning that competition. Mm. And people are, he went to obviously PSG and he, he did okay there. He Obviously, he doesn't have the players that they have now, but he did very well. The second point I want to draw upon, which I completely agree, is the the mocking of his, his English and his accent. It's just utterly unacceptable. And that's the problem with the modern football fan nowadays, or even society nowadays. That how many look? I'm born and raised in the UK. My parents are as well, but you know my family is is uh, Indian and Iranian, so you know mm-hmm. I I can understand a few languages. Um, but the fact that there's this perception in the UK, people in the UK don't speak other languages. They don't know mm-hmm. how to go and speak Spanish and Dutch. Now it's amazing that you can speak four languages. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for someone to come in and he he pretty much learned it so quick, but to mock him. Mm. It's just disgusting. It is that was something I always had an issue with, and I never found it funny. Um, no. Moving, moving on to Chris Wilder. Some the point that I really actually has given me a bit of a light bulb moment is when you said, obviously, they look at people like Gabriel and Pablo Murray. My brother's an Arsenal fan. He was like, "Oh, we've signed Murray. I'm happy." I'm like, "Do you know anything about the player?" Mm. He was obviously not good enough. He was playing. He's playing in the Brazilian league. And when I spoke to a South American journalist, um, Simon Edwards, I'm not sure if you know yeah. him, and he, um, yeah. I- yeah and he he gave such a fantastic sort of overview on brazilian football he said that anyone with half decent uh managerial sort of tactical acumen can go over there and 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 win win the league very easily in the copa uh, libertadores because he said that defensively like they're just a shambles so he's saying for, to see someone like mari at arsenal it's just it's mind-blowing he says he's not good enough so you know you see people like mari even look gabriel i thought i from what i've seen with him i, I do like him um, you you may be better place to judge, but you're right. When you look at their past, it's nothing to shout about. But yet, mm. people won't look at Wilder because of his past. It doesn't make and, sense. And I think you make a tremendous point. And 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 you talk about society in general. The, the most important thing is is competence. It's the most important thing. And when you're dealing with different cultures, when you're dealing with different backgrounds, you know, lots of people have got different qualities. And if you could find out what they are, and, you know, I, I, I look at it that, I mean, my, my, my opinions are somewhat in the minority in some cases, particularly with Unai Emery, but I, I say what I see. And I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not an oracle, I don't know everything. Obviously, I'm in a privileged position where, you know, I, I'm, I'm dealing with uh, professional players and managers on a regular basis, but you're always learning there's no there's no better judge of opponents than natural players that have played against them i spoke to uh, jacob mellis um a couple of months ago a couple of months ago when he was at mansfield town 
And we spoke about opponents and he spoke about Thiago, who's now at Bayern Munich. He said, I used to play against him in the youth setup um, at England and we played Spain. He said, and the man was just absolutely amazing, just absolute crazy feet and uh, wonderful technical skill. And, um, you know, even, um, you know, uh, he was speaking about Brendan Rodgers as well, you know, and the youth setup at Chelsea, the, the training sessions that they would put on. And this is what I mean about the, the history and what's gone before, because a lot of people don't really hear about these things. And from my point of view, whenever I'm writing a piece about a player or a manager, even in a women's game as well, you know, it's important from my point of view, also with podcasts, is to tell people things they might not already know. And to give them a little bit of an insight as to something different. Like I was on a um, a podcast last night and they asked me about Van Gaal's time at Manchester United. And I told them that not many people will know that before Van Gaal broke through here at Ajax, he went for a job interview to manage Dutch side at ODSA, who are now a Dutch first division side, but they were a well-established Dutch Eredivisie side for many, many years. And this was in the early 90s. And Van Gaal literally went to the job interview with a massive, huge dossier. And the chairman and the board, they were so taken aback, they thought to themselves, if we give this man the job, what on earth is going to happen? So for, for people that um, think that Van Gaal only ever knew success, I mean, he's one of the finest uh, Dutch football managers of his generation. But as I say, the little nuance is that he went for a job at Old ESA and unfortunately, he didn't get it. And um, you see how uh, how you've got the good and the bad of, um, of of going on to become one of the best managers of his generation. So it's just nice to nice to give little um, little pointers and little bits of information like that, really. Well, absolutely. I've learned so much um, on this podcast. I'm conscious of time, James. We've got five minutes left. But um, talk to me about what you think Arteta's done well. Uh, talk to me where he needs to, uh, where he needs reinforcements, and who realistically can come in. Because I think Arsenal obviously don't have a lot of money to spend, not because they don't generate it, because obviously there's the ownership issues. Yeah, talk to me about the owners as well, and your view on that. Well, I'll start with Arteta, uh, where he's. Um, I think he's organised a lot more. I think he, he, he's deliberately related to the players. The players have become more receptive. I think what he's got to work on is. Um, anticipation a little bit more in terms of uh, not necessarily cup games because we've been very successful in um, in cup competitions but also the league for example I was at Arsenal Sheffield United back in January and Chris Wilder made three subs and it was um, like a boxer chipping away in an opponent's body it was um, you know every sub gave Chris Wilder and Sheffield United the opportunity to go and get something out of the game. Each sub had that little bit more impact. And they drew the game, Sheffield United, they could have easily won the game. And Arteta had no answer to that. The same way that we went away to um, Manchester City after the lockdown, uh, Guardiola makes changes, we had no answer. So, in terms of the league setting, I think he's got to be able to anticipate more. In terms of the owners, uh, when you have an owner who's quite clearly... His number one priority is the LA Rams. It's not Arsenal. I think long term, it's not it's not the greatest going forward. I think the the richest man in Africa was re- interviewed recently, and they asked him about his um, quest to buy Arsenal, and he said, "Yeah, in 2021, I'm going to try my best." 
And they said, but why in 2021? He said, well, I'm a businessman and I've got other commitments first and foremost. So it'll be interesting to see what happens then. And in terms of players, um, I'll give one example. Uh, Todd Cantwell is a player I rate very highly who got relegated with Norwich. I've rated him since his first um, uh, loan spell here in the Netherlands at Fortuna Sittard. He played a key role in getting Fortuna Sittard promoted to the Eredivisie for the first time in 16 years. And you could tell that he's a very cultured player. He's a really, really good player. And I championed him being a signing of Arsenal this summer, being an attacking midfielder, being able to run from deep. And I was criticised because, oh, he's just got relegated with Norwich. He's not good enough for Arsenal. This was at the start of the season. Uh, Then Cantwell does a few keepy-uppies and scores a tremendous penalty to knock Tottenham out of the FA Cup. And then all of a sudden, Cantwell is good enough for Arsenal. When I championed the same player at the start of the season, people wanted to cart me off to the funny farm. And, you know, other players that I think would be very good in terms of adding something different about Dechorst of um, of Wolfsburg. He's an excellent striker. You know, one in two since his move um, uh, from uh, Emmen many, many years ago. And Hedekles also played for Arsene Alakmar on Wolfsburg. People like to put him in the box as a physical striker, but he's so much more. He's, uh, he's a good header of the ball. He, he's got a tremendous work rate. He's got an eye for a pass. And he's been criminally underused at international level. Uh, you take the Nations League, for example, where the Netherlands lost to Portugal. In that game, the Netherlands needed someone like that. that so I hope that the next Dutch manager, whoever he may be, um, really does take and make that a, a regular part of his squad because he's very much an underrated striker. Uh, it's a fascinating insight. I'm definitely going to have a look more into him. But James, this is all we've got time for. Tell the listeners where they can find your great content. Uh, you can find my content on at James Rowe NL. I publish my reg- my interviews quite regularly. Uh, you can also Google me, James Rowe uh, Football or James Rowe Football Amsterdam, and you'll find my previous work. Interviews include the likes of Simon Barker, Jamie Carragher, Graham Potter, Danny Cowley, Viv Anderson. So there really is something for everybody. And then there's a few interesting interviews coming up with the likes of Chris Bart-Williams, Paul McVeigh and um, John Heron as well, played for Celtic. So uh, interesting interviews coming up and uh, always keeps me busy. Absolutely. What we'll do is we'll chuck your uh, handle at the outro and we'll put it in the description below. But James, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know we spoke about this earlier on the week, but I've I've honestly learned so much. It's just been so interesting. And I'd love to get you back on the podcast and we can talk about uh, a few other topics because, you know, you've got such a wealth of knowledge. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You're more than welcome. Thank you very much for the kind words. And I look forward to joining you again in future. Absolutely. And to all the listeners, make sure, please, please, please give James a follow because, like I said, it's just got a wealth of knowledge. Make sure you like, subscribe, retweet this podcast because it's just been brilliant. And we'll see you on our next podcast.